Welcome to the Not in the Job Description podcast. I'm Scott McLaughlin. And I'm Chris Kiernan. Look at all the people around you. They may seem very different, but they all have something very much in common. Work. Most people have had a history of roles that's taken them to their current job. Everybody has a story about their job and how they got there. We'll explore funny, gross, embarrassing, scary, and sometimes almost unbelievable stories that people have experienced at their jobs. So enjoy the conversations as people share things about their jobs that were not in the job description. On today's show, we talked to Jim, who worked in the Securities Exchange. Welcome, Jim. Good morning. Hey, Jim. Hey, Chris. So uh, I, I know we've known each other for a very long time. You might be one of the people I've known on the planet longer than, you know, than anybody other than my family, um, securities exchange. But when we left high school, you know, I, I went on to my menial job trying to you know get some sort of a life. Uh, you went to New York and you started working. So I guess before we even get to securities exchange, like what was the path there? Well, Scott, you might remember when we finished high school, I was working in a state park cleaning restrooms. So pretty pretty lofty. It's quite the rags to riches story. But um, when I finished up my college degree in economics, I went to work for an insurance company in the Midwest here in Columbus. And I worked there for about five years. Let's just say I was bored out of my mind. So when I was about 29 years old, I was still single. And I thought, hey, if I don't go make a move or a transition, it's probably never going to happen because I'll probably settle down, have kids, and then I'll be stuck doing whatever I'm doing. So at 29, I moved to New York City, yeah, and I quickly found work in a booming stock market. It was the tech bubble back yeah, then. Yeah, right. And uh, I was working for a brokerage firm, uh, a well-known brokerage firm, and I was there about six months, and they got bought by another one, and we were yeah. all laid off. Yeah, it's common. So I was out uh, networking, looking for a new job, and somebody said, what do you do? And I said, well, I typically market mutual funds. And they said, oh, I know a guy at the American Stock Exchange who is looking for somebody just like you. And I thought, why on earth would they want a marketing, like a fund marketing expert? And I went and took the interview and I learned about this new type of mutual fund that they had invented called an exchange traded fund. Which are all over the place now. All over. And back then there were 30. Oh, wow. And the American Stock Exchange had invented the first one. You're like at the beginning of like the equivalent of a mutual fund. Like kind that's of. the very mm-hmm. beginnings of yeah, ETFs. The, the very, very beginning. So they said, we have this successful ETF. We didn't even call them ETFs back then. Um, and they said, we think we're at the point now where we need somebody to market it. <laughs> uh, up to this point, they just mailed prospectuses, uh, the right. secretaries of the exchange, if you called, they would mail you a copy of the prospectus. And that was sort of the length of the marketing effort. Yeah. So, so much for tech, they're mailing people off of a phone call. But I know, eventually yeah. they get around to the internet, go on. Yeah, so they said, look, can you bring some of that fund marketing experience here to the exchange and help us grow the Spider, which was the first ETF? So I right. became what we call the registered rep or the salesperson for the Spider, the first ETF. And... Um, Spent about five years working at the exchange, helping other fund companies build their ETFs and list them at the exchange. Okay. But my primary job was to try to grow the spider. So when I started... It yeah, had... it was. <laughs> <laughs> so when I started, it was about $17 billion in assets. And about four or five years later, we got it up to about $51 billion in assets. So we did a good job. You yeah. Know, growing. Nice. Now, it's, it's funny. I know when you first started working there, and I don't know, maybe, maybe this has value now. Um, Kim and I went out to visit you, and I think somehow or other, I don't know if it was before that or what, but you gave me a hat, that, uh, like a ball cap, like mm-hmm. just some giveaways, because you know, you're the giveaway guy when it comes to uh, promoting the ETF. But I have still to this day up in my closet a hat that says American Stock Exchange and Spider. Nice. Nice. Yeah. I had a lot of tchotchkes. We oh, did yeah. everything from hats to shirts to sponsoring the U.S. Open tennis tournament. Oh, yeah. Um, golf tournaments. I mean, you name it. The Spider kicked off at that point about $10 million in marketing budget. And sadly, my salary did not come from that. Yeah. But it would go to a lot of uh, tchotchkes. 
Sure, yeah. Mm -hmm. But giving people tours of the floor, Scott, was one of my favorite parts of the job. Oh, right. Most of the day you're sitting in a cubicle, you're in front of a computer, you know, kind of doing a white collar job, uh, as most people have some experience with, I'm guessing, in that field. But um, going onto the floor and showing somebody the actual trading pits and the excitement during the day was, was a great break from the monotony of working in your cube. Sure. Now I have a question though, and this, this sounds really ignorant and that's only cause I'm ignorant, but, um, you know, back in the day when, when you'd listen or watch Ferris Bueller's day off and they went down to the Chicago trading floor and it's just pandemonium cast. Is there even a trading floor like that anymore? Uh, yes and no. They're, they're a dying uh, yeah. space. Right. So what you see in that movie is very similar to the American stock exchange. Right. When I worked there, these are open outcry auction markets and the posts where a security is positioned is important. And then the crowd around that is what we call the pit. Yeah. And so what you see in that movie and what you saw, you know, going onto the American stock exchange floor and to some degree on the New York stock exchange floor today in the background of Jim Cramer and so forth. Right. um, That's an open outcry auction But in the 70s, we started introducing computers to allow orders to come into the order book at the the post. By the time I left, over 90% of the orders were coming in through the computer lines. So only a small fraction of what we do today is actually done open outcry. That makes sense. If you still go to certain places like... um, I've been a visitor at the Chicago Board Options Exchange up in Chicago... And um, they still have open outcry pits for things like S&P 500 uh, index options. And you'll still kind of get that excitement, but the vast majority of trading today is just zeros and ones. Right, right. There's 75-year-old traders out in front of those pits that don't know how to use a computer yet. Is that what's going on? Scott, you just defined my experience at the exchange (laughs) because I took that job in 2000. Yeah, And I left there in 2006. What I saw was, in 2000 when I started, were a lot of human beings yelling and screaming. Right. There were people still flashing hand signals mm-hmm. from oh, yeah, balconies. Yeah. Yeah. We had copper wires and phones everywhere. And traders wrote down trades on note cards. Yeah. And you would find these things all over the place. Right. By the time I left six years later... It was a couple of engineering nerds in the back ripping right. computers apart, and all the orders were electronic. So I bridged this gap of the old school 70-year-old barking yeah. orders to just silence on the floor. That's crazy. Yeah, I, I can imagine that's changed so much. There's probably more people working that job in their living room now than anywhere else. Yeah, they probably shouldn't, but you're probably right. <laughs> yeah, well... You know, there's something to be said about getting a, a, a speed to market. Like everybody has their computers all souped up now where they're just looking for any trade movement. And sometimes they just jump in on it and then they sell it to make pennies. I mean, people are doing this stuff now just from their living rooms. Um, but I'm sure there is some benefit to being around people. And I think that's one of the things we've lost with everyone working from their living room. That, that, that connection is kind of gone a little bit. Well, I can't underestimate the importance of speed in trading. Oh yeah. Um, this is really my wife's area of expertise, the low latency trading. Um, she used to be a programmer on wall street specializing in that. But when you have a security whose value is determined by a formula, like an options contract or an ETF, the faster you can process the value of that and get your order to the exchange order book, the better. Sure. And that gives you a trading advantage. And you're not going to get that with your AOL dial-up right. at home. <laughs> yeah, that's what I use. Exactly. The lengths that brokerage firms go to to shorten that time cycle yeah. would blow your mind. It's, oh, sure. It's something like launching yeah. a, a space um, satellite or, or the James Webb's uh, <laughs> telescope. They spend a lot of money. They hire a lot of very intelligent people with right. PhDs and physics and engineering to shave milliseconds off of that. Yeah. And then the exchanges, because they have the computational order books in a data warehouse in New Jersey or Brooklyn, they will lease out 
the rack space in the data center right next door to their processing. Yeah. So you can shorten the cables from your server to theirs. And they auction those servers off. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. So the highest bidder gets the server cage right next door. And then the patch cord between the two, which is probably made out of some rare earth element that you've never (laughs) heard of to make that electrical signal you know, shorter. Um, yeah. the, the lengths, uh, I, I can't even begin to tell you, um, we could spend a whole podcast on that and it would oh, be yeah. fascinating, but just know that, you know, the key to that sort of trading, that speed is critical and all wall street works on it every day. And that makes perfect sense. I mean, if you think about it in a perfect world, if you, if you could, you know, create anything, you just go backwards in time, right? Yeah. So you go backwards and you can say, well, I know yesterday, uh, IBM went up $5. So I'm going to go back a day and I'm going to buy as much as I can. And then I can sell it all the next day for a $5 profit on every share. But these guys get close to that, right? They get to it's moving. So get in quick one way or the other. That's right. They yeah. absorb the information from the market and then they react to it. Yeah. And if you can do that faster than anybody else, yeah, it's like having can- an opportunity to go back in time. Yeah. And that goes to another kind of fundamental of trading and securities trading, which is information. Humankind has worked very hard to speed up the movement of information. Today, we're living in a time where somebody can post something on TikTok or X or whatever, and it goes viral. And I I can think of a few examples here from my years that, that illustrate this, but even going back to the 1500s, Amsterdam had a large commodities exchange and they would speed up the ships to deliver the stock prices to london through the english channel oh wow and if your ships were faster than the other guys you win yeah Mm -hmm. you you got the the arbitrage and the and the trading trade uh opportunity so um i I think that is um an important part of wall street that maybe people don't appreciate which is in a marketplace all information comes together in one place right and it's a really special thing to witness yeah and think about if you have that speed it's almost the equivalent of you know being the casino like you just get the vig you're always in on a piece of whatever happens you just want stuff to happen correct and a lot of trading strategies are related to that i'm just going to make a fraction of a penny millions of times a day yeah and and take very little risk in doing it i'd be willing to live with that risk absolutely (laughs) All right, so uh, you spent a lot of time in uh, Manhattan mm-hmm. from 2000 to 2006. You know, one of the things Chris and I talk about with people are just office shenanigans because we met each other working at the finest steakhouse establishment <laughs> that a mall could ever create, um, and it was nothing but shenanigans. I think a lot of people, when they think about people working on Wall Street and Manhattan, uh, you know, stuffed shirts, uh, nothing but suits and ties and very prim and proper Uh, with the exception of the Wolf of Wall Street. Like what kind of shenanigans did you see happen in the securities exchange world? Well, a lot more than I can probably mention in this podcast, but some that come to mind, um, I should preface this by saying that the floor is full of traders that either work for themselves or work for a small brokerage firm. But they're, they're pretty much, their boss isn't looking over their shoulder every minute of the day. And you take a right. whole bunch of these people and you put them in an environment that looks like maybe a, a school pep rally. They get bored from time to time. So oh, they yeah. find ways to entertain themselves. So they're always running jokes on the floor and things like that. You might find a person running around the trading floor and they've got something stuck to their back. Yep. You know, things of that Classic. nature. You know, good, good hijinks there. But... You'd be surprised a lot of the floor traders aren't necessarily, you know, buttoned up, you know, $1,000 suits with, you know, vests and ties. They're kind of street smart people that kind of dress casually because they're going to be on their feet all day. And um, I think some of the things that I would typically see them do uh, would be just akin to degenerate gambling. Okay. (laughs) Okay. I I appreciate that. I'm in. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Tell me more. These people might have time to kill when the markets aren't being very volatile. So they might have TVs around and there might be a high speed car chase. And so they might start gambling on what time will that car officially stop? 
Mm-hmm. And so you'll see a bunch of people gathered around a television set and they're all throwing bets out and they're all watching frantically to see, you know, like, are they going to put the, the spike strips down and stop the car? Yeah, or, yeah. you know, are they going to ram it? And so you might see gambling like that. The Amex was very famous for a lot of fantasy sports gambling on the floor. I know that's legal now in like Ohio, right. New Back Jersey. Back then it was cutting edge. Yeah, it was sort of underground. It was against the exchange rules, so yeah. they probably don't like me talking about it. But we had really robust, awesome fantasy sports on the floor of the exchange. So nice. every NCAA tournament time, there was a robust futures market mm-hmm. in all the teams in the tournament. So um, that was always an exciting time of year. Question, uh, though. what Was that automated back then? Because there oh, used no. to be, yeah, fantasy sports used to be done on paper. Right. Like someone was putting a spreadsheet and sending it out. Yeah, those were not automated. And um, baseball futures, um, all during the baseball season, you could go down and you could purchase futures, long or short, on your favorite baseball teams in Major League Baseball. So I wouldn't call those shenanigans, but it just sort of reflects the type of person that wants to work on an exchange floor yelling and screaming. They've got to have a bit of degenerate gambler in them, but at the same time, an appreciation for risk. Yeah. Risk on, risk off, and... And information, right? Making informed decisions and taking that risk. Well, almost all of these guys on the floor spent their morning getting shoes shined and reading the sports page. Yeah, right. So they were pretty informed. They knew box scores. Um, I knew guys in New York that could recite the entire starting pitching staff of the Cleveland Indians to me, knowing I was from Ohio. So um, they were pretty well informed. Yeah, I've always been a fan of the saying, an idle mind is the devil's workshop. And I'll tell you one thing right now. I think, I just think dudes like to gamble. And whenever I would travel, uh, one of my friends, Dave, we would we would travel sometimes together. Even to this day, uh, I've, I've got a friend we travel with. If we're sitting in a hotel lobby, it's not uncommon if we get bored to go, all right, odds are even. How many people are coming off that elevator? I mean, we will right. bet on anything. It doesn't matter, but it's just fun. It helps to kill some time. It does. Um, you're always looking for an edge, but yeah, it, it is crazy. So you definitely had uh, people betting on sports, car chases. What other shenanigans happened in the world of uh, Wall Street? Well, um, there was always the day after. Uh, a lot of these people worked hard and played hard, so... <laughs> Uh, the American Stock Exchange was very famous for actually having a bar inside the building. So That just sounds like a bad idea. Um, actually, it probably was in the long term, but in the short term, it was great. Um, there's a very famous Wall Street hangout or watering hole, at least for my generation, and it was called Harry's. And there are a couple different locations. Um, the Harry's that just closed a few years ago that was on Hanover Street was more of the bond market hangout. But the equity and option hangout was Harry's at the Amex. Okay. And so this actually predates my time. We, we actually did not renew their lease and took over that space to expand our ETF options trading. Okay. And we built a state-of-the-art options trading facility in the old Harry's. But I think it illustrates that you could be having a bad afternoon or a good afternoon and just decide, hey, I'm just going to the bar. And you could just go down a set of steps and you were already at the watering hole. Nice. And so I, I met a lot of people who were pretty pickled. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and uh, anytime you get people in their younger years, most of your traders tended to be young men at least at that time. And, you know, they were always coming in from some exotic vacation or some bachelor party or, you know, maybe hadn't slept the night before or something. So um, you get a fair number of, um, you know, fun stories that I probably shouldn't repeat about uh, shenanigans going on after you get off the floor. Could you imagine how shitty that productivity was come around noon? I mean, it had, there had, if you, if you had the ability to measure that, it had to be, material well, fortunately, <laughs> fortunately that's about the slowest part of the trading day in the u.s yeah so so, so that's okay if, if that if you're going to do it at any time yeah, yeah yeah the the market open was always very volatile as prices kind of settle out yeah and then things are kind of smooth for a while and then right around lunch it's really dead sure so it's, it's that, a real nice time that makes to, sense you, you get through the main time zones of the u.s and then it kind of slows down yeah and then in the early afternoon, you have the European close, and then you have people coming back from lunch, and then you see a little pop around one o'clock. Yeah. And so, 
you see some flurry of activity there, and then everybody's pretty much preparing for the close. So usually here in the U.S., that's about 4 p.m., and a lot of orders come into the order book to be executed at 4 o'clock. And so you'll see a lot of volatility leading up to the close. So my advice for any of you ETF investors out there, um, especially if you're a retail investor, try to avoid the open, try to avoid the close. They're very volatile times. Um, See if you can make your trade around, you know, 10 o'clock or or two in the afternoon. Pretty stable at that point. Yeah. But anytime there's shocking news in the system, right? Things can turn on a dime. It's really amazing. Um, Yeah. So, yeah, you know, that's why I love my um, lazy strategy of uh, get rich slow. I just, you know, continually invest. I I can't, I think I might own two stocks that are individual. I don't own any individual stocks. Not that that's. That might be two more than me, Scott. Okay. Well, see, I own two, two major ones and uh, and a very small percentage of of my entire net worth. But, um, yeah, I, I, I think it is funny when there are people who institutionally are like, okay, we're going to make this play. And they're just sinking millions of dollars. And then the next day they're out. You know, I made my my, my two cents per share and I'm going to go somewhere else. Well, that's not ex- investing. That's gambling. Right? Absolutely. So, yeah, and there's but, plenty of people There's a the difference. It. Yeah. Uh, I think Warren Buffett probably has the right approach here, which is for most of us, the advantage we have in the stock market over these professionals because we don't have that timing or information right, that they right. have, um, we can wait them out. Yeah, right. Wall Street right. traders have a quarter or a year to try to yeah. make their nuts so their bonus looks pretty good. Their bonus looks good and that their portfolio is just a smidge better than everyone else, because that's what we're talking about in most cases. Well, you know, Buffett has 20 years. That's right. He can wait you out. So um, I think that's the advantage of most retail investors is time. Yeah. And, and on the long duration side. So, sure. So, um, you know, we, we talked about the time frame that you were in New York and I have to ask, cause I have a recollection, but you were working in the business on nine 11, 2001, but you weren't actually in Manhattan on nine 11, were you? I was not. And I remember this because when all this shit was going down, I tried to call you and it went to voicemail. I tried to call you another time and all the circuits were dead. And then I called your brother and he's like, dude, I'm trying to get a hold of him. So you were kind of MIA for a while. We were a little concerned. What was it like? uh, First of all, where the hell were you? And what was it like when you got back to Manhattan? Uh, First, I should say I'm the luckiest person in the United (laughs) States. Um, I was actually in Washington, D.C. Oh, good. Nothing happened there. Yeah, nothing. I was in a hotel uh, directly across the Pen- uh, the Potomac River from the Pentagon. And I had a lovely view of the Pentagon from my room. And I had actually gone down there on Sunday to speak at a conference. It was a group of pension plan executives. Okay. And I was to teach them about ETFs. It was an educational session. And so I did that on Monday. Tuesday, I was supposed to uh, wake up and enjoy you know, breakfast and just mingle around and network with these pension executives who might buy the spider. Right. Well, obviously, things were very different um, when I woke up on Tuesday, but I was stuck in Washington, D.C., and from my hotel room, I can, I actually have pictures of the, of the Pentagon, and I didn't bring my cell phone charger. I was kind of brand new to having my first cell phone. So I actually started wandering around Washington, D.C., looking for a place that would sell me a cell phone charger. So, Scott, that's partly why you couldn't reach me that day was my cell phone was not working, and I was stuck in this hotel in Washington, D.C. But it was the oddest experience, I, I mean to tell you. When I woke up and got suited up and went down for breakfast and coffee, the lobby was empty. Now, you and I worked in a hotel in high school in a gift shop, which will be a future episode, I hope. (laughs) But um, there was no one behind the counter. There was no one in the gift shop. It was deserted, like I was the last man on earth. And then I walked around to where the conference facility was, and there should be people mingling and having coffee and whatever, and it was empty. And then I continued walking around back to the lobby and I passed their sports bar, you know, our, our bow ties at the Radisson there. And 
it was wall-to-wall people all staring at TV screens. Yeah. And I, I could barely get in the room, and I looked up, and I saw a replay of one of the planes going into the towers. Yeah. And I thought, oh, crap. And I sprinted up to my room. I turned on the TV, and Scott, I must have been frozen there for 50 minutes. <laughs> of just course. Just frozen. You and everybody else. Like an hour later, I looked down, and I'm still standing between the twin beds, holding the remote in the same hand I turned oh, the TV yeah. on with. Yeah. So that was like my first hour. But I never received a phone call. I never called anybody. And then I started thinking, oh, I should start calling people. Right. And by the time yeah, I thanks. started doing that, I couldn't get through to anyone. Right. So I was just a man on an island. Um, my fiance, future wife, was working about a mile north of the towers. So my, I had a, a lot of concern about her. Um, my parents were frantically trying to reach me at the exchange. And one of my colleagues stayed in the building just answered phones that rang and said, we're all fine. Everybody got oh, wow. out. But we, we actually did lose 11 members of the exchange. Uh, I think it's 11 on that day. That's awful. Yeah. Uh, a lot of those traders had offices in the twin towers or the surrounding area. And then they would walk over to the exchange, um, you know, at the start of trading each day. And they were having their morning meetings around eight, eight thirty to figure out their trading day and trading strategies. So we did lose members that day. Nine days later, on the 20th, I was supposed to fly out to San Francisco to visit one of our bigger clients. This would be um, Barclays, who had developed the iShares ETFs. And so I was actually, I had a ticket on the plane that crashed in Shanksville. Oh, gosh. So if we weren't celebrating or remembering 9-11, if we were commemorating 9-20... I would have been one of the let's roll guys. Yeah, right. And then um, our offices were 300 yards from the South Tower. And so as the South Tower collapsed, a lot of that material hit our north-facing side of the building, which happened to be where the ETF department was. And we were actually in the top floor of that building. So we received the brunt of construction material that that came down and affected the surrounding areas. So when I came back to my office uh, a couple days later, I I actually uh, was let back into the exchange for a very hot minute to collect things like laptops and cell phones and purses that were left behind. Why were you grabbing people's purses, Jim? (laughs) (laughs) I think because I was one of the dumb volunteers. Um, When we got back together to reopen the markets the following week, we were sitting on Broad Street and we had moved our ETF trading to the New York Stock Exchange floor. And so on that following Monday, I actually reported to the New York Stock Exchange, actually the ICE right next door. But at midday, our head of security said, I need two volunteers to go back into the building and collect any personal effects. So I had a shopping list of items from my colleagues. So one woman said, I left my purse. Another guy said, my laptop, I need that. And so I was just running around trying to collect these items and get out of there as fast as I could. Scott, from the windows into the room uh, on the north facing side of the building, you know, it looked like a, a demolition site. We had debris about head high, six wow. feet, and then it sloped in kind of like a like a ski slope yeah. or an avalanche. It kind of sloped into the interior of the building. By the time we resumed working at the exchange in person, which would have been around October 1st, all of that was removed, oh, yeah. cleaned up, cleaned to the best that they could. I'm not saying they got all the dust because we still find kind of 9-11 dust in files and things uh, of that era but um but uh, they did a, a tremendous job of getting crews in there fortunately our building was structurally sound it, it was kind of built like a brick shit house it was really a beautiful building it's kind of a shame that it's not really a, a, an active trading floor anymore because i think the american stock exchange trading floor was one of the more ornate and beautiful trading floors that you'll you'll find it was built in the 20s and uh was a beautiful space and that was um that was one of our rougher weeks or, or months there, um, losing so many people that we knew and 
So uh, I think I was triply blessed. The plane into the Pentagon went right over my hotel and didn't hit us. I was not on the plane in Shanksville nine days later, and I wasn't at work that day, which is really good because a lot of things would have been flying over my head that could have done some damage. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I don't mean to sound insensitive, but how'd that bar fare? It it was gone. (laughs) Harry's was gone. We actually did have a bar on Greenwich Street behind the exchange that, um, you know, everything west of Broadway and south of, I think, Canal at the time was closed. Yeah. And if you had a business in there, you're done. Tough. Right, right. And so um, even to get into that part of lower Manhattan in those months, I would show up to City Hall in New York City. I would meet a New York City detective. They would sign me in once I flashed my credentials. And he would walk me into the exchange, and they would hand me off and sign me in. I would work in the exchange. On my way out, they would sign me out, and the detective would walk me back to City Hall. Constant escort. Yeah, yeah. And um, a lot of machine guns outside the exchange, which was kind of a weird sight you're not used to seeing on your way into work. The the whole TSA thing at the airport people don't like, that became my everyday going to work. My my briefcase was famous amongst the security guards. I had a a really cool briefcase made of baseball glove leather made by Rawlings. Mm And every time it went through the x-ray machine, they'd say, oh, there's the best-looking briefcase at the exchange. <laughs> they loved it. So um, I was well-known for my briefcase. And you get to know these people. I mean, they're, you know, giving you the the whole cavity inspection every day. So. Yeah, you might as well get to know them. <laughs> yeah. So when they were asking for volunteers for that job, too, you took it. Oh, I'll take the cavity. Uh, <laughs> no, no, no. Those, those, <laughs> those guys were some bad hombres. I mean, to tell you, they were um, retired New York cops. They were retired special forces. Yeah, probably um, not the greatest sense of humor at that time in their lives. Yeah. Actually, I, I think that they process things a lot better than others. Oh, that's you good. know, they, they kind of become uh, a little hardened to that in their line of work. Um, they had seen some things. Um, one of my good friends in security, though, did security for John Madden when he would travel around yeah. on Monday night football. And I uh, was always hoping to join him at a Monday night football game with Madden in Lambeau. Nice. That was kind of on yeah. my bucket list, and we never got to do it because uh, John eventually retired. And uh, I didn't get to fulfill that dream, but uh, I was looking forward to hanging out on the bus. And Heck yeah. Right, right. And actually talking baseball with Madden. Yeah. I understand he was a big baseball yeah. fan, and everybody that walks up wants to talk football. And here was somebody like myself who loved baseball, and so I was encouraged to spend some time talking about baseball history with him. Nice. Nice. Now, Chris, 9-11, what were you doing? I mean, everybody has that, like, exactly what they remember. Yeah. Yeah, no, I was working at the bank at the time, and uh, we actually just went on break. And we always played these Euchre games on break uh, in, in the break room, and we're just getting started, and it's on the TV, and kind of like Jim said, then next thing you know, you realize no one's shuffled or dealt. You're just kind of glued and mesmerized to the TV. Yeah. And I remember right before going on break, my mom had called and was like, hey, have you heard about this? And she was working for the state at the time in the state office tower, and she's like, they're talking about maybe evacuating us. And I'm like, I didn't think anything of it, of course, because... You know, it's not like now where news is real time, right? I'm, I'm I'm not watching streaming on my phone or anything like that. Right. So I just thought it was just a rogue, random accident. Plane hit the World Trade Center and not just some yeah. jackass didn't know how to fly or something, right? Yeah, most radio announcements couldn't really tell right. you the detail of what happened because right. they didn't even know what kind of plane it was. It was right. just like, can you believe some dork crashed right. into the World Trade Center. But then by the time, like I said, then we're on break and we see the second one, then you're like, oh shit, this is something serious is going on here. And um, by that point, then yeah, my mom at the Star Tower, they've sent her home and kind of recognized like, yeah, they were kind of ahead of the curve thinking yeah. like there's some security issues. So a lot of state government buildings and stuff, I'm sure. Because oh, yeah. they're not knowing, right? Like who's next? Right. Yeah, I'm. I'm very glad that my wife is not within earshot right now so I can tell the story. Uh, we took 9-11 off because we uh, needed some time off. We hadn't taken time off in a long time. We were going to drop the kids off at the babysitters, and we had two things on our agenda. Number one, we were going to test drive a sweet-ass Honda Odyssey because we had these two <laughs> punk kids, and our cars were too small. And so that was number one. Number two, we were going to go see a movie because, 
hey, we got the babysitter, we got the day off. So uh, I remember taking the kids to the babysitter, and on the way there, where I would get my news, the Howard Stern Show, um, they start talking about, oh my gosh, a plane hit the tower. So I'm thinking, oh, that's that's weird. But again, no context. By the time I get to the babysitters, she's got the TV on, and you can see that a second plane is hit. And so now I'm like, uh-oh, this is not good. So I'm getting calls from my sister who's in the military, and she's like, hey, you, you, you're going to have to help me out here. You may have to watch my kid. We got some stuff going on now because of all this. So I'm thinking, oh, my God, what is what is this about? So I, on the way home, I used my sweet-ass flip phone, and I called my wife. She didn't answer. She was in the shower. I get here. I turn on the TV. She comes downstairs and I go, oh my God, look at this. She goes, what? I go, this is a terrorist attack. It's been two buildings. Now they're talking about missing planes. And she's just looking at me. She's shaking her head. She was like, oh my God, that's awful. What time do you want to leave? (laughs) And I said, what? What time do you want to leave? What time does the, the Honda place open? And I'm just pointing to the TV like, but, but all this is going on. And you talk about the, and now I say it's cold. She says it's foresight. She's like, listen, whoever did this, this is exactly the kind of shit they want you to do. They don't want you moving. They don't want you doing anything, but we took today off. So we're going to go test drive a car and then we're going to go see a movie (laughs) and we're going to make the best of whatever this day is. And we're going to deal with this shit as a country. But today we have the day off. I I looked at her. My eyes were so big and I was like, okay. I mean, (laughs) and that's what we did. We went to the Honda place and everyone was just around the TVs. And she said, hey, I want to test drive one. And they just pointed to the keys like, yeah, the keys are over on that wall. Whatever car. And we test drove a car. Didn't like it. We headed to the mall. All right. Now, at this point, if you guys remember everything was suspect like they're gonna hit malls they're gonna hit this they're gonna so everything was out there we go to this mall and go to the amc theater and uh on that day um i'm trying to think of the name of the movie we we walked up and there's one kid there probably 18 year old kid and he looks like he does not know what is going on because in this entire mall it's me kim and this guy and i said are you open and he looked around he goes I think so. (laughs) Can I get some popcorn and a soda? And uh, then we watched Rush Hour. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) We were the only people there. We watched Rush Hour. And I I run out and I'm trying to think like, where's TV? I got to find out what's going on now. And we walked out there in that mall. It was pitch black. Everything was off. The 18-year-old was gone. We were the only person in the mall. We go out to our car in the little parking garage. We were the only car there. I think he just abandoned us and was like, I'm out. Scott, I was on a mall, too. Um, I was in L'Enfant Plaza in Washington, D.C., right next to the National Mall in Washington. Right. So looking for my cell phone charger, I have to cross over the mall in Washington, D.C. to make my way into Georgetown to try to find a charger. Uh, I was harassed constantly by DC cops, but I had the entire mall to myself. Oh, yeah. Nobody was was out about. Standing in front of the Smithsonian like an idiot. (laughs) And I was actually getting updates from a news truck. There was a reporter on the scene. And um, as I was talking to that news truck to get some updates on what was going on, President Bush returned to the White House. Now, my dumbass, I've got a disposable camera. And I'm between the Smithsonian and the Washington Monument. Not too far. Where Marine One is going to bank and go into the White House. And I'm down there taking pictures. So I actually have photos of Bush coming back into the White House. And the reporter taps me in the arm and says, I wouldn't be aiming anything up right now. Yeah. Right. And it dawned on me, there's probably a Marine about to take my head off. So... I kind of got behind the van and hung out while Bush returned to the White House and then proceeded on into Georgetown, dodging police the whole way because yeah. everyone I ran into said, you know, where are you supposed to be? Get out of here. And I, I would lie and say, oh, I, I need to go back this way. And I was making my way up into Georgetown so that I could try to find a stupid cell phone charger. Um So that's kind of how I spent my day wandering around in empty Washington, D.C., the one dumb guy walking around the mall 
Kind of like you. That, that was right, yeah. <laughs> but I love Kim's attitude, Scott, because that's the attitude in New York that a lot of us had. Yeah. That we're not going to let these events stop our way of life. We're going to roll up our sleeves. We're yep. going to do what needs to be done as a result of this and continue with our way of life. And that yeah. was the spirit. I, I wish more people embraced that today, and I wish some yeah. of our younger people had seen that moment because the response in New York was tremendous. You know, I, I totally agree with you. And I really appreciate her thoughts on that day as well. The thing that still freaks me out, you know, there are stages of grief. She had them in about three seconds. <laughs> <laughs> she cycled right through she it. She cycled through it and was like, okay, but today we have the day off. I know we're going to deal with this shit, but today we're taking care of us and then we're going to take care of that. And if you don't do that, I think she might have been the person that phrased it, then the terrorists win. That's right. That's right. Well, I love that attitude. <laughs> it's a little scary to live with, I'll be honest. I bet. Yeah. Um, but you didn't really come out totally unscathed from 9-11 because you still worked down there after the fact and you had some health issues from it, didn't you? I did. Um, well, it's hard to say uh, causation. Yeah, not necessarily. Um, but but yeah. Uh, yeah, like a lot of first responders, I came down with a very rare blood cancer about, uh, oh, 12 years after 9-11. So um, hard to actually say, you know, this was the cause. Right. But, you know, amongst... A lot of first responders, you have pretty healthy 30, 40 year old men, 20 year old men who all of a sudden start coming down with really weird, strange cancers in a decade. Right. And I was one of those. I came down with a rare uh, lymphoma that we caught right before it became stage four, Uh, spent a good part of a year um, visiting our friends at the James Cancer Research Center down at Ohio State, which... uh, I'm very, very fortunate that they have spent and dedicated their lives to helping people in that situation um, because I wouldn't be here talking to you if it weren't yeah. for them. Um, yeah, and I pray that just going forward, I don't have any more because it wasn't a fun experience. But yeah, there are a lot of people um, in the first responder community uh, that lived in that area and worked in that area. Not all of us were digging through rubble and, and things like that. Some of us were just keeping our financial markets up and running. Yeah, uh, That was our contribution to this, you know, um, philosophy that we're not going to let the bad guys win. And so, you know, we showed our patriotism or our, our spirit by just showing up to work every day. And yeah. um, I'll be honest, there were colleagues that I never saw again after that. I'm sure. They just right. said, I'm out. Yeah, that Check would keep you from yeah. going into a big city. That, that, there's a lot of people that yeah. would probably do. We had just hired a new employee. I'm not even sure I know her name, but she had just been hired. I think the Monday was her first day on the job. Oh, wow. Tuesday was her second day on the job. Oh, and man. she did not make it to the building. Yeah. She was commuting through the Port Authority location underneath the Twin Towers. She never even got orientation, huh? I'm not sure because yeah. I was in D.C. at the time. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. That's why I don't even know her name. But she was uh, coming out of the path station below the, the towers. And another colleague saw her sort of frozen, not wondering what to do. And he said, come with me. And they just ran away from the property east towards Brooklyn. Okay. And um, got them both to safety. But we never saw her again. Yeah. Um, can't blame her. No, no. Um, she probably found another great job somewhere else, and hopefully she's doing well. Well, you know, switching focus a little bit from 9-11, um, for, forget about 9-11 for a second. Mm-hmm. Historically, like there's, I don't even know, I mean, there's got to be some truth to it, right? When, when you're talking about um, the stock market crashes, 29, 87, like these big scenarios, especially when we allowed people to buy things on a lot more margin, they used to have scenarios where when things got tough, somebody's taking a diver right <laughs> off a building. Like that, that was kind of a thing that happened like really early in the stock market days. Did you, did you see anybody suffering or anything that happened? Um, because somebody's we're guessing personal financial issue went uh, pear shaped and they took some action, you know, in the time frame that you work there. Actually, no, I, I think that's a little overblown to some degree because, um, but it's a fun story. I know, I know. Um, 
you'll hear stories of a young trader who loses a bunch of money and then goes to their boss and says, Hey, I'm really sorry. I didn't mean to do this. It was a mistake. I quit. And the boss says, look, I just invested a couple million dollars in your training. You're not leaving now. You just learned a valuable lesson. Now get back out there and be smarter next time. I think that's probably more the reality that I saw. I did know traders who took large proprietary positions that went against them. And sometimes they would blow up firms. Um, In my era, more than likely the cause of a firm blowing up was a computer glitch. (laughs) So you you blame the software developers for that. But um, uh, no, uh, I think um, the only person I knew who jumped out of a window was uh, an older gentleman who had been a floor official. I'm not going to mention his name, um, you know, for his family's uh, sake, but um, I think he had received some really bad health news. Okay. And he had spent an entire career making a very good living on the floor of the exchange. He had lived hard. He had probably not take, probably spent too much time in Harry's. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And um, he got a really bad health diagnosis and he just decided one day that, um, you know, rather than go through the process of dying, he was just going to jump out of a window and end it. And sadly, um, I was one of the human beings who talked to him right before uh, my boss had asked me to deliver a meeting invitation to him physically on paper. So it's basically an email right. and my boss prints it out and says, this guy doesn't do email, hand deliver this. Nice. And I went down to his post and it was right around the close and he was busy and I just stood by quietly waiting for him to finish. Finally, he turns around and acknowledges me and says, what can I do for you? And I said, I'm just here to invite you to a meeting tomorrow. And he said, okay, thanks. So he takes the memo and, you know, that's the end of my work day. So the next morning I come in, we're at this meeting. He's supposed to be there. And there's all this commotion. And come to find out that he had had a city apartment near the exchange he lived or roommate, his roommate was another exchange official. Uh, their families lived in the suburbs somewhere in a nice yeah. uh, house, I suppose. But um, anyway, the one roommate caught him trying to jump out the window and tried to grab him before he took the plunge and um, wow. wasn't, wasn't able to, to get that. So I was one of the last humans to, to talk to him, I think. But uh, not not related to a bad trade, just yeah. uh, a, a bad deal on the on the health front. Are you sure it wasn't just a really bad meeting you invited him to? Yeah, I mean, he what just was the did topic? not want to go to that meeting. I, I think so. Um, <laughs> that that's very likely. <laughs> these damn ETF traders, another meeting. Yeah, we used to have these uh, things called specialist meetings, ETF specialist committee, and so we'd have the head of all these different brokerage firms come in and. It was pretty much the airing of grievances. Um, <laughs> the exchange bills were late. The exchange bills were too high. Our technology sucked. I mean, everything yeah. that they had a gripe about, we're losing market share to our competitors. You know, uh, the air conditioning's not working right. Just anything that they could complain about, that was our one hour a week to really uh, write it all down and then say, yeah, sorry, not much we can do about any of this. Yeah, I mean, it is kind of interesting. Every every type of job has its nuance of where you're going to get your ass kicked. And that makes perfect sense, right? Anybody's talking about their own money, especially with ETFs. I mean, the big thing is lower fees or no fees on certain things. So if that's not working, why are we dealing with you? I imagine there's, you get a lot of that. Yeah. And it's got the dollar amount of money changing hands on us exchanges is really mind boggling. I mean, we think about, our personal brokerage accounts and Hey, I'm going to buy a hundred shares of something. And maybe that's $10,000 and transferring the money around your Schwab account or something like that. But our largest pit was the QQQ options pit. And we designed a special facility just for that pit. Yeah. Prior to that, we were violating all sorts of fire codes and things. <laughs> Outstanding. Yeah. So it was really time to, to kind of revamp that to accommodate the volume yeah. But we were probably doing about a million QQQ options contracts a day. And my numbers might be off here, but 
I think that's either like five billion in notional or fifty billion in notional, uh, depending on where the zeros are. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, when you talk to these people as you're walking by and they're asking you, "Did you watch a Yankee game last night?" or "Do you know the clue to this crossword in the New York Times?" It's hard to imagine that when they say, "Hold on a second, I got to do something," and they sprint away, it's because they've got like you know, $200 million of notional value they got to deal with. And then they, they do it and then they come back and like, where were we? Right. Right. So the, the dollar amounts, um, you get a little immune to it. In fact, uh, this, this would get our floor traders into trouble from time to time, because when we quote securities on exchange in this open outcry system, we typically don't put on the handle. The handle is the part of the dollar amount of the of the quote. So if something's a hundred dollars and six cents, the handle's the hundred dollars, and then the quote part is the six cents. So um, we would typically, to speed things up, leave the handle off. Yeah. So if you went up to the spider crowd and said, "Where where 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 are we? I need a quote." The specialist might say, "We're six cents by eight cents." And you just leave the handle off. Well, occasionally you'd have a clerk or something putting in an order into a system. And just because they're used to talking in the pennies, forget to put the handle on. And then they put into the system, a trade just got made in the spider, $100 security, and it traded for eight cents. Mm, right. mm, mm. Well, you can imagine everybody who's collecting information yeah. on the trading of the spider, especially That's a red flag. Yeah. You talk about your AI right. in this day and age. When a computer reads a stock just trade or an ETF just traded for eight cents, yeah. it kind of throws a, a real less than one percent of its value, right, right. right? Yeah. Well, this also triggers lots of other orders that are on other exchanges or in derivatives on those securities, yeah. and so this cascading impact occurs. So we have processes at exchanges to correct this. You know, we can bust and adjust trades. And, and that was done in these kind of clerical errors, or yeah. we, we call them fat finger errors. Yeah. Um, fat finger errors are common on Wall Street, and they used to be more common back in the day. But um, they would cause us a lot of headaches in the trading pits. And uh, But, uh, you know, that's something that uh, in this electronic day and age, it's hard to bust and adjust. Right. Um, the markets are so fast, and with the computer technology yeah. employed, right. It's hard to go up to another human being and say, no, I meant $100 yeah, and bad. 8 cents, not 8 cents. Meanwhile, there's 10,000 investors who made decisions <laughs> based on that one right. little mishap. Yes. And they did it with a computer that is so fast they couldn't stop it anyway. Correct. So, yeah, that that's kind of interesting. I do think it's funny. The faster we get, we do kind of lose sight of the fact that that can have its own downside as well. There are so many... Um, you know, puts and things that are that are in place right now, automatic purchase orders if, uh, if a stock hits a certain amount or if a uh, trade hits a certain amount that I don't think you can unwind that very easy anymore. No, it's like hard. They literally just stop the market. It's very hard to bust and adjust a trade in this yeah. day and age. Yeah. Well, and then as technology's evolved, you know, and you don't have as much personal back and forth. I mean, what happens when there's a disruption to like the power or, you know, oh, yeah. major storms and things like that? It's got to totally throw everything out of whack. It, it does. Um, a great example of this was in 2003, Chris. Um, there was a blackout, and you may recall this because it started here in Ohio, and then it sort of mm-hmm. cascaded through lower New York and, and then spread to the East Coast. When that hit New York City, we had a complete blackout. The entire grid went out. And the exchange, this was about 4.10 in the afternoon. Our equities stop at 4, but a lot of our derivatives trade to 4.15. And so we were just approaching that very critical closing point for our options, for our ETFs that traded to 4.15 at that time. And the power just goes out. And what do you do? What do you do with all those You're orders? Stuck without your hedge, yeah. And I, I can imagine the whole floor probably went, oh, right? Was there like a collective like, oh, shit? <laughs> it, it's it's crazy because a lot of those closing trades are going to be things that you do to sort of neutralize your book or collapse yeah. your risk. Um, so, you know, maybe you bought a bunch of securities during the day and to lock in your profits, you got to unload them at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And so all those final adjusting trades never got executed. So it left a lot of risk in places where they didn't want it to be. And so 
I remember this was, you know, just two years after 9-11. And so um, I got really good at running downstairs. Um, and so I go sprinting down the stairs to the trading floor. I go right up to the spider pit and there's a clerk standing back there, uh, kind of a low level employee at that time of uh, Goldman Sachs. And I said, Nate, what happened? Nate knew everything that had occurred from like three o'clock on. This was a junior trader for Goldman. I don't think he made much money at all. Mm -hmm. Um, But that illustrates again, how fast information travels. A clerk on the floor of the Amex, before the news media could figure this out, told me exactly what had happened in Ohio, how it had cascaded through the region and made it to New York. He knew the cause of it, where it originated, and the impacts within seconds, as fast as I could run down those steps. And while the rest of the world's wondering what's going on, um, a firm like Goldman Sachs already had that information in the hands of its most junior traders. And I I think that kind of illustrates how Wall Street works. But yeah, there were a number of times where um, there were concerns about a collapse in the wall of the World Trade Center as it was being, you know, cleared out. And so they had these warning sirens that would go off. (laughs) And so a lot of times that would be in the early evening when we're working late after the exchange was closed. And it's like, yep, time to go. (laughs) Right. But um uh, the Amex was also notorious for having some antiquated air conditioning and exchanges don't run really well without proper ventilation right. because there's a lot of computing going on in those yeah. facilities. Mm-hmm. And so the Amex would often have to shut down because of air conditioning problems. So if you think it's tough being in your home, if your furnace goes out or your AC goes out, this is devastating to an exchange. Sure, yeah. So um, it's kind of ironic because the the people that founded the American Stock Exchange were the original curb brokers who used to trade stocks on the street out in front of the New York Stock Exchange. So they were used to dealing in, you know, in the the elements. But uh, apparently by the early 2000s, you can't live without your air conditioning. No, absolutely not. Oh, that's funny. I used to joke with uh, member firms, you know, I'd go out and they'd say, what was that outage all about? And I would say, oh, our AC broke. And uh, it was ironic because the Amex was sort of the the least digitized of our yeah. U.S. exchanges. NASDAQ was all electronic. The New York floor was light years ahead of us in terms of technology. And so I used to joke like, yeah, we'll just go back to paper and pencil the way we used to do it and everything right, will right. be great. <laughs> but the... The volumes of trades and executions today is mind-boggling. It's got to be insane. Yeah, it, it is. Yeah. Um, we were having a hard time with our technology in that era. This was twenty years ago, of just being able to bring in the quotes from away markets. Yeah, um, we used to consult with NASA and electrical engineers as to how we could speed up the amount of information coming into right. our computers, and they would say. Sorry, we just have humans haven't invented that yet. Yeah. Um, so we would actually get permission from the Securities and Exchange Commission to ignore like every fifth quote from an options marketplace. Just just yeah, pretend it, it never crap. happened. Right. Right. Yeah. But that could reduce your your volume by twenty percent of oh, what wow. you need to process. That's crazy. And that was twenty years ago. Yeah, it's amazing how technology has changed. I, I even look at my family. I was born to a person who was a little older, and I knew my grandmother, um, you know, when I was little, and she was born when there were no cars. My mother remembered when cars in the neighborhood were a really cool thing, but like airplanes started happening when my grandmother was born. I'm talking Wright brother airplanes. <laughs> so just the idea that in our lifetime, you know, um, we've pretty much seen, you know, we're not exactly that age, but the moon landing. And now we're talking about so much stuff that's happened. It is crazy how much technology has taken off. And it seems like it is just getting exponential. exponentially. Yep. It just gets faster and faster. Like the next 20 years will be outrageously more technology than what's happened in the last yeah. 20 years. Right. That's like, right. Our kids and grandkids will say, that was us. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like the shit we're doing now is going to be the equivalent of dial up. They'll laugh right. at us. Yeah. Well, this is the time of the podcast where I ask my co-host, Chris, what'd you learn today? 
Yeah, I learned that I think I'm going to make my trades around 10 a.m. just so I can disrupt their fantasy football conversations. Ah, that's a very good point. Mm-hmm. Uh, I learned that promoting the spider is not some weird sexual thing. It was actually the job that Jim did. So uh, thank you very much for that, Jim. Uh, This is Scott. I'm Chris. Saying we'll we'll see see you at work. Thank you for listening to the Not in the Job Description podcast. If you have a story you'd like to share, or if you'd like to be a guest on our podcast, please let us know by sending us an email with a brief description of your story to stories at notinthejob.com. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more crazy stories, make sure you follow us wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on our social media, including Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, Rumble, Instagram, and YouTube.